Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast, episode 25, Abiding by Subtraction. What did Jesus mean when he said we would be pruned? What does it look like? How do we remain in the Father's love? Today, Steve reviews perhaps the most famous portion of John's Gospel, chapter 15. John 15, I I was hoping to get through the first 25 verses, but um, since I don't want you to have breakfast here, uh, we're going to stop after about verse 17, I think. But this is one of the most famous passages in the gospel. And right now we are at the center of the farewell discourse that we've been talking about, where Jesus, on his last night, um, uh, he's with his disciples, 14, 15, and 16 is the core. He goes into that room with them in John 13. And if you you want, you can look back uh, on our Facebook page or in following along on the podcast, folks. You can do that by going Impact Nations dot com slash podcast uh, you can see what we've got to say about fifth, uh, 13 that's kind of a setup the actual core teaching is 14 15 16 and then 17 is what's known as the priestly prayer I can hardly wait till we get there too so right now at John 15 we're right in the center of this farewell discourse and the passage tonight is about love it's about intimacy it's about the power of trust It's about the movement of Christ in our lives. So here's what I want to do, because I've really worked on on how to get through this. We're going to go through the passage. We're going to probably just about every verse. Uh, And then we're going to go back. And we're going to look at some deeper meanings, deeper implications uh, of the vine and branches, uh, metaphor or parable. That could be called either one. Um, it, this is one of the great examples of what we keep talking about, uh, how with, with John you can go in layers and layers. So I thought we'd go through it, and then we'd go back and touch on that. So, um, in John's Gospel, Jesus is the source of living water. Remember John 7, if anyone is thirsty. John 4, if you knew who was asking uh, he is, as we saw, also he is the bread of life. We've talked about the, the I am's in John's gospel. And now he is the life-giving vine. So let's, uh, let's start with verse 1. I am the true vine. My father is the uh, vine dresser or vineyard keeper. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes. And he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. It's interesting, I just stumbled over this. Uh, I'm reading tonight from the Holman Christian Standard Bible, but we have, I'll bet among us, as many versions as are in this room, we have different words that are used for gardener, vine dresser, uh, uh, husbandman is is the old King James one, and then also the uh, I am the true or the real vine, uh, every every branch, some say that uh, he cuts off or casts away. So all I'm trying to point out here is the language is really, really rich. So we're back to what I've taught you many times, that, that Greek is a much denser, rich uh, language than English. And so we kind of have to come at it with many different words to pick up what the intentional, original meaning was. 
Okay, so he's talking about, I'm the vine, you're the branches, obviously, not literally. Um, so this is a parable, it's a metaphor, it's actually called a Michel, it's a, uh, a Hebraic word for that. Um, and so it's important that we're not overly literal in interpreting this passage. Just parenthetically, we have become, as evangelicals, increasingly literal uh, on the evangelical side, conservative evangelical side, and that was it wasn't written literally, it wasn't it wasn't read literally, it wasn't intended literally. Uh, the Bible is so filled with metaphor and allegory and parable, and we miss if we just look at it uh, in a literal sense, which there has been a strong tendency progressively over the last 150 years. So, having said that, let's look at it. I am the, uh, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vineyard keeper, this version says. Jesus is the true, or the word equally, or maybe even better, is real vine. John puts that right at the beginning. Context is everything. At the end of the first century, John uh, is writing against the rise of Gnosticism. And Gnosticism, among other things, denied that Christ came physically, literally as a man. That, that it's almost like he was a, an apparition. Gnosticism talked about there's hidden knowledge that only selected people know. Gnosticism, it started to rise quickly it, by the time of Colossians was written. So in the early 60s, we already begin to see Gnosticism. Now a generation later, John is addressing, is addressing that. Um, the father is the gardener, the vineyard keeper. It points to the father as as the original source of all life. I told you before that the early church fathers referred to the Father as the original source, or the essence, the original essence of life. Um, and the Son, we see again and again through John's Gospel, the Son receives life from the Father and then gives it back again. We're, what's that word we've been using for weeks? Perichoresis. Right, perichoresis which is this, this dance of the triune God, this interrelatedness of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So that's what we're seeing right here. The image of the vine in this passage represents the true life of God. It is the, the vine, it's the Son, uh, that carries the true life, the essence, the original source of the Father to us. Does that make sense to everyone? Mm -hmm. All right. Verse 2. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes. In this parable or metaphor, Jesus is the vine and we are the branches. We're going to get deeper to that in a, in a few minutes. But just as the branches are intertwined on the vine, it is difficult to trace individual branches from beginning to end. How many of you have ever been to a vineyard in Europe? Or, well, we've got them here too, I guess. They're, I mean, there's something wonderful about vineyards. But you'll see how intertwined the branches are. Um, when we build trusting relationships through our shared devotion to Christ, we're able to bear the fruit of grace and peace in our lives. And Henry Nouwen said that. I love Henry Nouwen very much. Let me say that one more time. 
Just as it's difficult to trace the individual branches from beginning to end, when we build strong, trusting relationships through our shared devotion to Christ, we're able to bear the fruit of grace and peace in our lives. One of the big shifts, something we have really, really lost, and it just increases in the 21st century, it actually makes me sad sometimes, is we have a ruthlessly individualistic view of the gospel. The vast majority of the time that in the New Testament when we see the word you, it's plural. As as rural waitresses up in Canada say, what do you guys have for breakfast this morning? Right? And uh, my family in Ottawa Valley, use is just the proper understood plural of you, of course. (laughs) And so when we read you, we need to think use, okay? Or if you want the amplified version, use guys. All right. In the vineyard, there's two actions involved in producing maximum fruit uh, in, uh, in Palestine. In February and March, the vine dresser cuts off the branches that cannot bear fruit. They've had it, right? It's like we do our roses every year, and there's branches that's, that had it. Um, and then in August, he pinches off, or here the word is used, cleans the small shoots that are drawing life away from the fruit-bearing branches. John's audience and Jesus' audience would have known this intimately. I mean, it was an agrarian culture, of course. So, if we're the branches, then we have, in this metaphor, there's two possibilities. A, either to be removed or taken away. Um, And that opens up a whole thing we're going to get to a little later. What does it mean that he removes branches? Is it kind of an eschatological saying about the last judgment? Or is it simply, in a parable about a vine, branches that are dead, you get rid of them? We'll look a little deeper at that later. So either they're, they're removed, literally cast off, by the way, or if fruitful, they're trimmed clean. Some of your Bibles say pruned, and some of them say cleaned. Both are completely uh, authentic translations for the word, okay? To prune or to clean. So that it'll produce more. And cleansing is a long-term process. God never rushes it. Never rushes it. And my mind went to Hebrews 12, this verse we probably all know, Hebrews 12, 11. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. So, this verse, too, is about being cut back. It, it, God uses it to get our attention not to punish us. Often, I think, to just slow us down. To put us in a place, a more of a listening place. For some of us, just quite literally, to put us in a place where we have more time to listen. I had uh, a couple of really, like all of us, I've I've had some pivotal seasons in my life, but way back, almost 20 years ago, 1999, I was a very, very busy pastor and church planter. I was was 
busy leading in my denomination and we planted a bunch of churches and, and it just had nothing but momentum. People were getting saved all the time and on and on and on. And suddenly, for the first time since I'd been in ministry, I had this longing to pull aside, to pull back. And I felt guilty about it because of my good old Protestant work ethic, right? And uh, I was actually with two friends, uh, John and Carol Arnott, in Toronto. We were having supper, and uh, we lived in the West Coast then. And, and they just really said, that's the Lord. It's time to take a break. So I did what I'd never done. And I pulled back for two months, and most of that time I was all by myself. I remember I walked off the soles of a pair of shoes in those two months, and it should lose some weight. I should try that again. Um, but it was a pulling back to listen. Sometimes, I still work this into my life. Since then, I really need to do that. But sometimes, pruning is really painful. Uh, some of you folks I shared a little bit just before when we were having coffee. God took me through a season of incredible pain as a father, as a, as a leader. It's like everything that could be cut off and cut back was. And at the end of two and a half years that did not feel fun at all, did not seem like the hand of God, it just seemed like it's over. And of course, what it was, was what Jesus is talking about here, mm -hmm. so that I could bear more fruit. You know, we are thrilled with what's happening with Impact Nations. Mm -hmm. I've been on the phone today with Bulgaria, on the phone today with Kenya, uh, with, talking with our Ugandan partner. I, I'm amazed at what's happening all over the world, and it just keeps increasing and increasing. I know that I know it never could have got there without the pruning. But... As the writer to Hebrews said, it is not big fun. So pruning, cleansing, comes in a lot of ways, doesn't it? We probably all know people that have maybe had a car accident or a season of sickness or unemployment. That's a killer. I think, especially for men, something about just the old role models, you know, uh, death of a loved one. But we need to know that we are being pruned for something new. A new life in God. Well, let's move on. I'm maybe going too slow tonight. I don't know. Verse 3, he says to the disciples, But you're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. He's saying to them, They've already gone through significant pruning and cleansing. Is it going to be over? No. But he's identifying, You've gone through some pretty serious cleansing. And what cleanses us? His word. Cleansing involves the process of what... Uh, Brendan Manning calls Ruthless Trust. If you've never read that book, get Ruthless Trust by Brendan Manning. It's terrific. And these first verses, all the way in the first 16 verses, but especially the first eight, he, they're layered. It's like he keeps saying, it's like waves coming and coming and coming. And so there's a lot of, of uh, repetition. Uh, verse 4 and 5, he says, Remain in me. How many of you have got remain and how many have got abide? Both are absolutely accurate. Remain in me and I in you, just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, so neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing 
without me. John's using a technique called parallelism. Parallelism is all the way through the Bible. If you if you're new to it, look for it, especially in um, look for it in uh, Psalms and look for it. Hi, and look for it in Proverbs. You will see the same thing said one time after another, but with different words. Okay, and it's used uh, to emphasize or highlight a really important or central point. So we're seeing parallelism happening right here. The whole thing here of of abiding in, he says, you abide in me and I abide in you. This goes back to what we talked about um, last week, I think. John 14, 20. He said, I'm in the Father, you're in me, I'm in you. This John just keeps coming at this stuff. It must be very important because he keeps repeating it in slightly different words. Our identity is connected to the vine, connected to his identity. The, the, the vine points to the incarnation again. It is because of the incarnation we can be united with the triune God. I'm going to unwrap that near the end. But it is because of the incarnation that we can be united. It's because of the incarnation that this vine branch metaphor makes sense. Okay? And then he says, remain in me. We got that word again, right? Meno. M-E-N-O. I've told you that John uses that word 63 times in this gospel. Seven times in nine verses here. And we've said that means abide. That means remain. That means dwell. That means stay. Um, Those of you guys who've been around through the whole thing, you know how often we come back to that word. Um... So it remains, uh, remain rather, suggests ongoing, steadfast, single focus. If I come to see Phil and Cookie, I come to see you, but I might be there for 30 seconds. But if I said, I remained, I stayed with Phil and Cookie for the weekend, so we could learn to fly fish, I could (laughs) learn to fly fish. It was an 8-inch Whopper, wasn't it? It was practically Moby Dick. Those, every, every inch of that 8-inch trout was just fighting. Anyway, I'll move on now. Um, <laughs> remain suggests steadfastness, ongoing, single-focused. And then this incredible statement. Apart from me, you can't do a whole lot. No. You can do nothing. Bupkis. There's no other way to live a fruitful life. But if we learn to abide, learn to remain, there's a result, it's much fruit. I'm going to come back to this again too, but I want to say, fruit is not the goal. Fruit is the outcome. Okay? I remember years ago, one of my mentors, John Wimber, standing and saying, Oh man, I walked by an orange grove because he was from Anaheim. They had orange groves everywhere. I walked by an orange grove the other night. It was so weird because I heard all these orange trees going, ah, 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 just straining to uh, produce oranges. And we all looked at him, and then of course he laughed. He said, No, you can't make fruit happen. It's just the result of being a healthy orange tree. So fruit is not the goal. Uh, and really, for me, there's a great challenge to not get my eyes on the fruit. 
but just to be about abiding. So, in these first 16 verses, I told you that he, he uses meo, abide, seven times. He speaks of fruit five times. These are the two most prevalent words in tonight's passage. He says in verse 6, You are the branches. The simplest thing in the world hit me in the middle of the night. I thought, for years, I've been personalizing this verse too. You are the branch. He didn't say you are the branch. He said you are the branches. There's a communal corporate message from Christ about us living together as branches. And he says, you can do nothing. Um, this verse, you can do nothing, by the way, just, to, just as an aside, it was a central classic verse in the early discussions about grace in the 4th and 5th century. Uh, probably you've all heard of St. Augustine. Um, you may not have heard of the Pelagians. They taught that we can do righteous and pleasing acts without God's help. That we can just get it done. And he was eventually, Pelagius, who was an Irish uh, priest, was eventually uh, declared a, a heretic. But this was a great battle that went on. In this particular verse, apart from me, you can do nothing, was the, it was like Martin Luther's The, the, the Just Shall Live by Faith. Okay? So, what are the implications of you can do nothing? Is he saying you can do nothing that has eternal value? Is he saying you can do nothing that's of consequence? Is he saying you can do nothing that is relevant to the purposes of God, to the kingdom of God? I'm going to leave that there for now. Verses 6 to 8, he says this, If anyone does not remain in me... So all that was the first five verses. It's pretty dense, isn't it? Uh, 6 to 8, If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch, and he withers. They gather them, throw them into the fire, and they're burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. So verse 6. If anyone does not remain in me, he's thrown aside like a branch, and he withers. They gather them, throw them into the fire, and they are burned. So he's repeating what he said with even more emphasis, what he said in verse 2. It's, it's stronger. There he said the branch is removed. The word here literally is cast out. And cast out is a very strong word throughout the four Gospels. The synoptics use that term uh, emphatically. I'll give you one example. Uh, Matthew 8, 12, they will be cast out into outer darkness. Mm -hmm. Very same word. So again, we are presented with a question. See, if, if we were reading this on the surface two-dimensionally, then we could say, well, this is what this verse means, this is what this verse means. But we can't do that. I can't do that authentically with anybody here since I'm saying that there are multiple levels of meaning. And this passage, as much as any that we've looked at in this whole John's Gospel, 
This passage presents lots of questions and lots of multiple meanings. And all I want us to do is start looking deeper and start asking the Lord what he has to say to each of us about this, rather than me saying, well, this is what this means and this is what that means, okay? So, he'll be cast out. So we're again presented with a question. Is this simply language suitable to the parable, the metaphor, because it's normal for dead branches to be gathered up and burned, right? I do that every fall. Gather them up. Well, we don't burn them here, but uh, I used to. <laughs> um, or is it meant to point to the end of all things, to be eschatological? Hmm. It's interesting that there's parallels in the synoptics, like Matthew 3.10, every tree that does not produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Uh, he says, uh, if it doesn't produce, it's, it's cut and it withers, right? The word withers doesn't suggest a sudden thing, but a gradual loss of life as the branch is not receiving nourishment from the vine. Verse 7, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. Again, the, the, this stresses the, the word remain, meno, remain, abide. The Father and Son love to give life. This is Jesus' message. This is John's message. They love to give life. That's what this whole vine metaphor is about. But there is an if-then here. We can't get around it. There, there's something conditional here. And um, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. John told us last chapter, 1414. In my name. Okay? He says, if you ask in my name, I will do it. But within this parameter, it's in his name. It's to ask Jesus for the very thing that's on his heart. So th this prayer seems to be at one level it's limitless, right? Move mountains. But at another we're confined by abiding. What is it that the Spirit of Christ is saying? What does he want? Verse 8. My Father is glorified by this that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. Note how John powerfully and effectively uses repetition through this whole section. He keeps repeating two themes so that we see how entwined they are, abiding and fruitfulness. So then we get into questions of what does he mean by fruitfulness? What does John mean by fruitfulness? Uh, is it meant to be missional? Is this connected to the Great Commission? Go into all the world and make disciples. What is the kind of fruit that he's looking for? If it's missional, then it's the fruit of evangelism, of extending the gospel in what was still in John's time a very hostile world. Is, is this the fruit that glorifies God? We tend to read this verse according to our own makeup and presuppositions. You know, there's, there's, uh, sodality and modality are two church planting words. And, and 
Modalic is about nurture and taking care, and sodalic is about mission. And I am, as I get older, there's more modalic coming into me, but I am a pretty hardcore sodalic person, right? I'm about raising up people and sending them out. So I have always seen this passage until I've been studying it this last couple of weeks. I've always seen this as intensely missional. The fruit that remains is men and women who are rescued, right? One of my dearest friends years ago, he's with the Lord now, died in a plane crash, but uh, he used to say this to me, all healthy things grow. And uh, I hear it coming out of my son's mouths now to other people. Don't forget, all healthy things grow. And I don't disagree with it. One of my spiritual sons, Randy Matthews in India, three quarters of a million people, he says the Great Commission, Matthew 28, is the core curriculum. Mm-hmm. Everything else is peripheral. So, but if we are more on the nurturing end of the spectrum, maybe the fruit that remains is the personal fruit of transformation. Both are possible. They're not mutually exclusive. As the branches are connected to the vine, we receive the abundant life that the Father and the Son love to give. God is then glorified as we give this life that we've received to others. I I spoke a few weeks ago about compassion at New Life City. That's about me receiving from the vine and then giving what I receive away. So it's about compassion and it's about encouragement. It's about the term I love, the beautiful gospel. But it also, some of us more sodalic people, we see he's talking, clearly he's talking about going into all the world and making disciples. Well, let's see where this goes. Verse 9, he says, As the fathers loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. There it is again. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commands, and I remain in His love. I have spoken these things to you so that my joy may be in you, and your joy may be complete. This is my command. Love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. Well, let's unpack a fairly long passage there. Verse 9, he says this incredible word, um, as. As the fathers love me, in the way the fathers love me, I've loved you, remain in my love. Okay? So, how has the father loved the son? Well, first of all, from before time. Jesus himself, in the, in the priestly prayer we'll get to in chapter 17, He says, now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Literally, by the way, before the cosmos was. Um, Verse 24. Then they will see my glory, which you've given me because you love me before the world's foundation. Again, before the foundation of the cosmos. Do you remember early on I told you that, that our translators have, even in the words we use, we've contained some of the, the majesty of John's language. And almost all the way through John's gospel, the word cosmos, K-O-S-M-O-S, 
which of course translates directly to COSMOS, Cosmos, we have reduced it to world. I mean, world isn't bad, but John is saying cosmos, everything. So, how has the Father loved the Son from before the beginning of time? And how about us? Ephesians 1.4 For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Matthew 25, that great parable. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. How is he loved from the foundation of the world? How has he loved? With mutual and a shared integrated love. The Father is in the Son. The Son is in the Father. So he says, remain in my love. And we go, how? Anybody ever wrestle with that question? Let's unwrap this a little bit. If you keep my commandments. His commandments. We hear that word and we get military thoughts and everything else. But his commandments are the place of eternal and abundant life. They're the way the cosmos works. Sometimes you've heard me talk about the whole rhythm of the cosmos, of creation. They're the way it works. They're the means for his blessings to flow to us. And they reflect his movement. They are our source of true and lasting joy. We'll see that in a moment in verse 11. Secondly, Jesus is the example and the empowerment He's, remember in, in up in the when he was uh, when he was wiping cleaning their feet. He said, "I've given you an example." We talked quite a bit about that. He is the example of how we abide. Um, Hebrews two uh, twelve two. I was reading this Sunday morning. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. He's the author and the perfecter of our faith. It's all drawing light from him. Verse 11, I've spoken these things so you, so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. His joy is released in you and me as we obey. You know, obedience can be based on fear. We all know that, which is a negative emotion and a negative motivation. But obedience can also be based on trust. I'm going to trust you. And one is we almost pull back and the other we lean in. Mm -hmm. Obedience is about trust. Verses 12 to 14. This is my command. Love one another as I've loved you. No one has greater love than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. Well, the application, either in our Christian community or beyond our community, is to love all others, right? The Sermon on the Mount, which I've said before, is that's our core curriculum for me. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. He articulates again and again and again. We're, we're called to love others, right? We go on Matthew 22, love God, love people. So, he calls us to love others, but I, I like the context of this. I like it because love one another as I've loved you. 
He's given like a particular love to them. And so the context is, he calls us to love others with his love, but we're to love those who are given to us. That's really important. That's really important in ministry. I was sharing with somebody last night that I've had to ask the Lord, God, please show me the ones in need, the ones on the side of the road, to use the Good Samaritan metaphor. Show me the ones that you're telling me to give myself to. Because I've had to learn that. Because otherwise I, I've gone through seasons quietly usually. I'd say in the first seven or eight years of impregnations where I just couldn't sleep at night. I just felt overwhelmed. Because it's like everything. It felt like everything. Well, I got to do this in Zimbabwe. There's this epidemic and I got to do this over here. And da 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 And I think it's probably just part of the growing the the maturation process. But what I get in this verse is he calls us to love, with his love, those who he's given to us. Um, we shared earlier when we were having coffee that, that I've asked the Lord for many years, going back more than 30 years, Lord, would you show me which one I'm to give myself to now? So Jesus, he stretches us, but he's not ethereal, um, he's pretty concrete. He's pretty realistic. And uh, I'm not going to love everybody in this city the same, right? But there are ones he gives to me. I've got a, a Mexican lady right now he's given to me. And so I'm, I'm, I'm able to love her uh, out of what I'm receiving from the vine. And it's bringing life to her. It's wonderful. I, my guess is this lady's probably in her late 50s and she's just dirt poor and she's been struggling forever. And I go into a neighborhood where they're full of that. But this one, mm-hmm. he gave to me. So, um, and I, I think Jesus is telling us to see these people as a gift. I've mentioned before that St. Francis of Assisi described spiritual maturity as being marked by admiration for others. I just love that. This week's episode is brought to you by our journey of compassion to Haiti. Did you know that Haiti is the poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere? Impact Nations has been working in Haiti for years, but this will be our first journey to this nation in over two years. Join us as we bring practical demonstrations of God's love and compassion. You'll be healing the sick, helping out in mobile medical clinics, distributing water filters, and sharing the good news of the kingdom of God. Join us in Haiti, April 28th to May 7th. Visit impactnations.com slash Haiti to learn more. Let's rescue lives together. And now, back to the podcast. He's saying, you've got to love the ones I give you. It's a clear command, and it reflects Leviticus 19.18, known as the royal law. Love your neighbor as yourself, right? Leviticus 19.18, that's the royal law. That's what Jesus added uh, to the Shema, to, to uh, Deuteronomy 6. Love God, love people, love your neighbor. So we get to verse 13. No one has greater love than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. So there's two clear meanings here. 
One, Jesus was about to give his life for them and for everyone. And they didn't know it. They knew something was up. So this is a classic case of remember grade eight when they taught us dramatic irony when we know something the characters don't know. But so it was about, he's going to give his life for everyone. And he also knew that eventually all of them would give their lives except John. History, historical tradition really tells us that John is the only one who died a natural death, not without lots of difficulties. So there's this clear meaning of laying down your life. He's going to do it. They're going to do it. But what does he also mean by lay down your uh, lay down our lives for others? I think it, it's as we place their interests over ours. In doing that, we reveal and demonstrate to them that they are loved by Jesus. That the love that we are abiding in, the vine, that life source, is going out to them. I've always loved Philippians 2, 3, and 4. In humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then he says this thing. And I don't know if we understand how, how important this is. He says, you are my friends. If you, if you do it, I command you. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last Then the Father will give whatever you ask in my name. This is my command, love each other. So let's go back to this. You are my friends. If you do what I command you, I no longer call you servants. I believe this is an incarnational statement. Because incarnation is all about him entering into our humanity, right? Fully human, fully God. Friendship is about vulnerability. It's about openness. It's about transparency. These are the hallmarks of true friendship. This is how you know when you're starting to get into the deep water with friends, when you can really be like that. And that strikes me as profoundly incarnational, which I'm going to talk about in a few minutes. And again, he says, you're my friends if you do what I command you. Uh, My paradigm was so negative for so long without realizing it. I thought this was another if-then. I'll be your friend, but you better do everything I say or I won't be your friend. Right? I mean, that's just, I'm overstating it slightly, but it seemed like conditional friendship. But this is not corrective. This is not cautionary. This is a declaration of who they really are. He's saying, you are my friends. You do trust me. You do follow me. You do love me. We're going to get to chapter 21. One of my favorite episodes in all of the Gospels is when when Jesus is affirming to Peter, you love me. And this statement's the same thing. Verses 15 to 17, I no longer call you servants. Servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I call you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I've made known to you. This is a powerful declaration He is redefining their relationship on the last night. 
He is redefining the relationship. As they're about to face the greatest crisis of their lives, Jesus wants them to know that they are his friends in the fullest sense. He's affirming his love, his loyalty, and his trust of them. You know, he says you're going to all scatter. But really, what he's saying is, but don't worry about it. Because I know who you really are. And yeah, fear's going to get in the way for a, a few hours. You're going to be scared. But, but who you really are, you draw your life from the vine, from me. It's, it's all about affirmation. And he says, and so you're my friends. We're going deep together. And by the way, this is unique to John. There's just a passing reference in Luke 12, 4, using the word friend. But, but this whole thing of friendship, of abiding, of resting, is a hallmark of true friendship. This is how Jesus experiences and sees the disciples. For everything I learned from my Father, I've made known to you. Again, he's transparent with them. You know, they often say knowledge is power, right? If I can kind of let you know that I know more than you do, that puts me in a little bit more powerful position. He's completely transparent. He says, everything the Father has taught me, I've taught you. Incredible transparency. Um, let me just get back to verse 16. You did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. We're back to the issue that we addressed in verse 7 again, aren't we? What this fruit that will last. This was all Jesus' plan. It was his volition. He wasn't controlled by events. He chose. He chose them from the foundation of the world. I've always loved Romans 5.3. Early on when I got saved, while I was yet a sinner, while I didn't give a rip about Jesus or the gospel or church just getting on with my life. In that state, he chose me. He loved me. I remember the first time that bit me, it just blew my doors off. He's saying, I chose you. There's a plan. Look at, we saw the hint of it in uh, chapter one. Remember with Nathaniel. Hey, Nathaniel, an Israelite in whom there is no guile. Come. He says, I think you got the wrong guy. Remember we talked all about that? Yeah. And supernaturally, he says, no, 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 I saw you when you were under the tree. He's saying, while you were yet sinner, while you didn't know about me, while you didn't even know I existed, I chose you. Mm-hmm. Ephesians 1, 4, from the foundation of the world, I chose you. These, these verses are incredible to me. They're just incredible. But then, look at this, verse 16. We've got we to gotta do it carefully here. He says... Uh, You didn't choose me. I chose you, appointed you. Why? To go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last. So, go seems to suggest to me, I think we're partly answering the question in verse 7. Abiding in him leads to movement. I remember on a couple of occasions. Once was in Australia and once was in Canada where people said to me when I said, we're going to go. We're going to go pray for the sick. We're going to go do this stuff. Oh, you don't understand, Steve. We're called to pray.
pray. We're just called to intercede. It's not our ministry to go. And I responded to them. And there was a point of disagreement. <laughs> because I believe with all my heart, abiding him leads to movement. I know people who fall in love with Jesus because they fall more in love with the poor, more in love with the refugee, more in love with the ones that he identified with. And then he says, he wants you to go so that you can produce fruit that remains. That's a key phrase for us in impagnations these days. Uh, we're talking an awful lot about how important disciple making is. How to make disciples. We're talking about it all the time. I was talking about it today in meetings in Africa and in Bulgaria. We are about making disciples. So, I don't know how you produce fruit that lasts if you don't make disciples. And I am, I for one, am not impressed with how many hands go up uh, in a big meeting. I'm very excited with how many people become disciples of Jesus. And so, it's interesting here, I'm going to go back again so I'm careful. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Here's just a subtle little thing that you might have noticed. Here, who gives us our requests? Who is it? The Father. the Father. But in John 14, 13 and 14, in this same farewell discourse, Jesus gives us whatever we ask. So is Jesus confused? Is John confused? No. He is using language again to stress that the Father and the Son are inseparable. Okay. And then uh, we come to, uh, then the Father will give you whatever you ask. Then is a connector. You always got to look at what's, what's it mean. It's so that, this is why the Father will give us what we ask, so that we'll bear fruit. We're back to the earlier discussion about the nature of fruit. And it seems quite clear that at least one kind of fruit he's looking for is missional fruit because of the go. I don't think that's all of it, but I think it would be pretty hard to avoid that truth that he's looking for missional fruit. Okay? And then he just wraps it up. It's a summary statement. This is my command. Love each other. You think they might have got it by then? <laughs> Abide, love, bear fruit. So that's going through those first 17 verses. I'm going to Keep going. I want to talk about abiding for a few minutes. I've been reading a few books, as usual, but I've been reading a really interesting book uh, written in the 70s and in, in, in English translation now called The Way of the Spirit, as well as I've been reading some Thomas Merton and Henry Nouwen. These are some of the writers I like very much. And they've all helped me to put some words to the journey that I'm on. The vine takes me back to the incarnation. And I said that earlier, but I want to unpack it a little bit. It takes me back to the incarnation because both the incarnation and the vine are about, that, about connection that moves us into an inseparable shared life. Abiding is a relationship in which Christ and I, two lives, two persons, 
We live and move together. This is my abiding journey of the last several years. Um, if you need a proof text for that, good old Acts 17, 28, in him we live and move and have our being. Abiding is a life of mutual giving and receiving with the second person of the triune God, which is a complete reflection of what the church fathers called the divine dance, the interaction, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I won't talk a lot about that tonight because we've talked about it before and we will again. Because of the incarnation, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Because of the incarnation, Christ's human nature became the vehicle for divine revelation. Let me say that again. Because of the incarnation, Christ's human nature, fully human, now became the vehicle for divine revelation. God with us, Emmanuel, God with us. Something very intimate in all of this. And I think abiding is about coming into a place, an experiential and aware place of, of this intimacy, of this closeness. Um, the life of God the Son is now interwoven and connected with me by extension with us. My whole journey of learning to abide, which is a long, slow journey, but not an unhappy one. In my abiding, Jesus reveals to me my true self. My true self. Remember he said, I'm the true vine? I'm going to give you truth. I'm going to give you truth. And we know John 8, 32, that the truth shall set us free. So in abiding... I find my true self and I find that I am most truly alive when I'm living, experiencing unity with the triune God and with all my heart. And this is one of the things I think we evangelicals have really missed. We've turned this into propositional truth. We've turned this into doctrinal positional truth. And I know that there's, I know there's a whole thing of, you know, who we are in Christ, our identity in Christ. And as a pastor, I went through all of those, uh, I suddenly forgot his name. Uh, but you know, all those who I am in Christ, but Neil, Neil Anderson. And I, I, I'm not dissing Neil Anderson. I think it was part of the journey we had to go on to know who we are. But we as evangelicals stopped, stopped shy of what I think it's really about. When I am in unity with him, it is not a doctrinal, propositional truth. It is experiential. One of my favorite church fathers said, the glory of God is man fully alive. And I'm usually no more fully alive than when I'm sitting out there by myself in an unhurried way with my waterfall going which has become very significant for me, and I'm going to tell you why in a minute. I live between the already and the not yet. I live in the midst of, of spiritual powers that are opposed to me and are opposed to my abiding with Christ. And that is why I absolutely struggle with darkness and light, with despair and hope, 
my flesh and my spirit. And, and when I fall, when I fail, when I get lost, I only know one thing to do, and that's get up and I find out he's there. He didn't move one step away. And when I fall again, he's still there. Christ is always about abiding with me. He never takes a step back from me, ever. And I'm not talking doctrine. I'm talking this growing experience. We need to experience this. This is why Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, chapter 3, he says, I pray that you being rooted and firmly established in love, one of the central themes of the passage we've just covered tonight, I pray that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints, the branches, not a single branch, with all the saints, what is the length and the width and the height and the depth of God's love and to know the Messiah's love that surpasses knowledge so you may be filled with all the fullness of God. More of you, Jesus, more of you. I'm on the home stretch. I want to take you to a really interesting verse that was highlighted in the way of the Spirit. I never noticed it before. Psalm, Psalm 110 is that messianic, messianic psalm, the Lord said to my Lord, sit in my right hand. It is, you probably know this, the most quoted psalm in all of the New Testament. And yet I want to take you to the very last verse of this messianic psalm. He will drink from the brook by the road, therefore he will lift up his head. He, Christ, will drink from the brook by the road. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is a picture of the incarnation. Jesus emptied himself. The word I've taught you again and again, kenosis. And here in this wonderful picture, he stoops down to drink from the brook along the side of the road. He stoops down just like you and me, because there's no other way when we're thirsty. And he shares in the smallest and the lowest places of our lives. He is showing me that he has become like me, so that by abiding in him, I can become like him. That's the mystery of the Incarnation. That's why there was this great debate in the 4th century. That's why the Nicene Creed, they said, no, it couldn't be like us. Yes. This verse is beautiful. Isn't that an amazing verse? Can I say this again? Is it okay? Yes. In this verse, he will drink from the brook by the road. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Here he stoops down to drink from the brook along the side of the road. He stoops down just like you and me. And he shares in the smallest, lowest places of our lives. And he is showing that he has become like me. So that by abiding in him, I can become like him. 
It's the same brook. It's the same water. Both of us are are thirsty and needy. The infinite God comes down to live with me and in me. As I said earlier, we tend to see the cutting off and the burning of the branches in in an eschatological final judgment kind of way. And I'm not discarding that, but we're multi-layered tonight. In the spiritual journey, it's about losing ourselves. The single most repeated saying of Christ was, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses it for my sake shall find it. Right? The spiritual journey is about losing ourselves. By that I mean losing our attachment. To the degree that I lose myself, my my surface self, my public self, to that degree I see him more clearly. And the result is I experience my life in him. And I'm trying to find words. This is fleeting for me. It's fragile for me. I can be in that place of intimacy and suddenly, oh, i got to get those filters to Ethiopia or whatever. So what I do, I just use a, a simple thing Richard Rohr writes about. He says, just, it's a river, and just let those leaves go by. And refocus on the river. So it's fleeting for me. But I'm telling you on my journey, while I am learning to abide in him, I'm losing to some degree my surface self. And I'm discovering my true inner self. And he loves my true inner self. He loves all of me, but he he just loves that. So losing branches is also about losing my attachments, my wrong beliefs about myself, my wrong beliefs about him, about other people. And one of my struggles as a classic type A man One of my struggles is my desire to bear fruit. I want my life to count, right? Bearing fruit, as I said earlier, is not the goal of abiding. Learning to experience Him. Learning how to remain in Him. That's the goal. So the paradox is that as I stop seeking to be fruitful, I come into a place of authentic rest of surrender, of result. And the result is, rather, fruit that that he releases by his grace. He releases it. He's the vine. I can't suck it out. He just releases it. I had a funny thing last night. I was with somebody who started working with us, and I was trying to teach them how to to, uh, talk to people about becoming donors because we're growing so fast. I just need more people who will, you know, month by month help us. And we, I did my best, and we tried. And yes, we got some good stuff came of it, but it, we didn't really get that breakthrough. But I tried. And then I found out this morning while I was trying, somebody completely over here signed up for a huge monthly donation. <laughs> and I had nothing to do with it. I didn't say, who is that? And I thought, Lord, that's a funny little example. I know it's in a very practical realm. But, but I'm like that. When I'm not looking for fruit, 
when I stop trying to be fruitful, that's where I come into this place of rest, surrender. And then His grace is released. So abiding, I finish with this, is marked more by subtraction than addition. So I learn to stop clinging even to fruit. I discover more of Him and I discover more of the real me. Thus concludes another episode of the Impact Nations podcast. Thanks for joining us. You can email your questions to podcast at impactnations.com. And don't forget to visit impactnations.com slash Haiti to learn more about our journey of compassion, April 28th to May 7th. Thanks, and have a great week.